Hello, readers. John Tesh is a journalist, composer, broadcaster, and concert pianist. He's also the author of the book we're talking about today, Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grit, and Faith. John, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. So, John, what was your goal in writing Relentless? I wanted people to be able to take a look inside, look under my hood, and see all the mistakes that they shouldn't make in life, and they would be incredibly successful. (laughs) That's basically it. Uh, It really started from the guy generated by the guys at HarperCollins, who had uh, heard this story of my um, my what's called uh, divine healing uh, and my my challenges with uh, cancer in 2015 and how I ultimately got got healed and they came to me through my one of my agents and said would John be interested in writing about this and and I thought well you're always flattered when somebody says hey would you like to write a book and they said do you have any other stories and I said well let me go through my life in my head and I'll write some outlines out and when I got to the part where I was homeless in a tent at 19 and a half years old and Three years later, I was anchoring the news at um, WCBS-TV in New York City. They were like, well, keep going. <laughs> so, but, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know how many books you've written, but it's, uh, it, journaling is one thing. Writing 88,000 words in 240 pages, was, it was supposed to take six months, and I missed four deadlines, and it took me um, uh, two and a half years. No doubt it's a different beast, even for somebody who has as many stories as you do. And let's start at the beginning, John, because you were a curious child. You make that very clear, which manifested itself in you learning about things while also engaging in a level of mischief. Like as a first grader, you're making a home movie of the family cat going to Mars, complete with a special effect that had Tippy attached to a clothesline with a harness and fishing wire, or ripping a speaker out of the intercom and placing it in a pumpkin on your front porch to freak out trick-or-treaters, or wiring your living room couch up to record your sister's conversations with their boy friends. I bring up all of these things because you credit two people for helping you understand at an early age how to channel these efforts more productively. Your grandpa, Percy Tesh, and then also Dr. Tom Wagner. Who is Dr. Tom Wagner and what was the most important lesson he taught you? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you take anything out of this book, it's, uh, it's process. You know, uh, you, if, you, if you read any Navy SEAL books or you read uh, Admiral McRaven's book called Make Your Bed, you, you know that uh, the, the seals are all about about process, and and when I would look back and when you connect the dots on your on your life, you start to realize, wow, uh, I did this and that happened, or I did this and that happened, and and so whenever I was working Dr. Wagner's process, really great things happened for me. I got you know I I, I got out of the tent and got this amazing job. I I landed the you know a date with the girl of my dreams. Uh, Red Rocks was was completed, and we ended up selling the record company for eight million dollars. And and just and then there were also you know some some amazing failures in the middle of that. But Dr. Wagner was he was the New York State Teacher of the Year twice in, uh, out of an elementary school. He was a band teacher, and he was one of those guys that just sort of changed his lives. And he died at uh, not long ago, ninety four years old. And he was, his process was focused intensity and practice over time plus risk. And that was it. And his whole thing was, I don't want to hear about goals. I don't want to hear about which song we're going to finish. I don't want to hear about recitals. Uh, and we did some of those. Uh, but, but his whole thing was, you got to fall in love with the process. And so that's a big part of this book. And it's, it's, it's wild, too, because, you know, I, when, when all of this happened with the coronavirus, I said to my publisher, I said, Oh, what a great time to to have a, a book out. And Matt Bauer said to me, the publisher said, you know, this is the perfect time for this book because who's had more suffering and, uh, uh, you know, and adversity than you have. And, and there is a way there's a way out of it. And so 
Uh, Dr. Wagner was the one. Uh, if, uh, Percy, uh, my, my grandfather, was the one who, when I would behave like a city kid, he had me go cut a switch, as you know from reading the book, cut mm-hmm. a switch in the, in the woods. And, uh, and then he, he uh, took care of my, my, he tanned my hide with it, as we say back in the day. <laughs> An old school method of punishment, to be sure. Now, you've alluded to this a couple of times, so I'll go ahead and ask about it. You uh, point out some different points in your life when you experience a sort of paradigm shift. I like to call it an epiphanous moment after which everything changes. What was the paradigm shift during that second semester of your junior year at NC State, and how did it impact your life over the next year for better and worse? Yeah, I mean, what happened was everybody around me acted honorably except for me. Uh, my dad was, was a, a vice president of the, of the Haynes Underwear Division, and he decided that, that I was going to follow in, the, in his footsteps, and, and, and he wanted me to enter as a textile chemist in that, uh, in that degree path at North Carolina State University, and I wanted, it, all signs pointed to me being some sort of an entertainer, you know. And he was a World War II veteran, uh, stations off the coast of Okinawa, in an amphibious assault craft. And so, you know, entertaining to him meant maybe spinning plates or having a monkey act or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so he said, no, you're not doing that. You're going you're gonna to go and get a real job. And about, I don't know, about uh, five semesters in, a friend of mine suggested that I uh, take a, an easy A course to bring my GPA up so I could stay on the soccer team. And that was Radio and Television 101, and I got bit by the same bug I'm sure you got bit by, mm-hmm. which was like, oh my gosh, I'm not coming out of this class, I'm not going to any of my other classes, I'm just going to make uh, uh, TV shows, TV programs, radio programs, I'm just going to create all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, so I decided I needed to change my major without telling my parents, which I don't recommend. And uh, my, my statistics professor wouldn't sign the drop ad card because he said we were past the drop ad date, and he was right. And so uh, I was in my uh, fraternity house, and I may have had a beer, and uh, and I uh, I made the fateful decision, as recommended by one of my brothers, to sign my professor's name to the drop ad card because uh, my my fraternity brother said, "Well, this is what I do all the time. I've dropped like five courses just this semester. Nobody ever checks." So I did that, and I got caught. And my dad got a letter. He didn't get a report card. He got a letter saying that I had broken the honor code at the university, and I was given, being given an F for the course and, and suspended indefinitely. He called me into his office. My dad did. He had a scotch in his left hand and a Kent cigarette in his right, and the letter was laying in front of him, and he said, you're no longer welcome in my house, as he put it. And so within 24 hours, I was in a Volkswagen, uh, you know, a, a Volkswagen Fastback in 1967 with my pup tent from Boy Scouts on top of it, and I was headed for a park in Raleigh, back, back to Raleigh. My parents lived in, in Winston-Salem at that time. And back to Raleigh in a park uh, where I could see from through the flaps of the tent, I could see the rest of my compatriots walking to class in their their freshman uh, senior year. And there I was breaking concrete uh, for a, uh, a construction crew. And so, yeah, I had, as Hernan Cortez said, I had burned my ships badly. What I'm about to ask you may be especially valid considering what we are collectively going through right now as a country and a planet. But how do you create a cheese hot dog using a house current? <laughs> I really wish you hadn't read this book. You're going to get me in a lot of trouble. Um, when, I, you know, when I was starving, um, it, it was uh, hot dogs was the way to go, right? But I didn't, have any, uh, I didn't have anything other than electric current. I mean, when I was, actually, when I was in the, in, in the tent, there was, a, there was a hookup outside, and there was also a payphone outside. But uh, one of my electrical engineering 
uh, fraternity brothers had taught me how to do this. And what you do is you find a, you know, a, 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 you cut a plug off the end of a stereo or off the end of a, uh, of a lamp and you fray the ends of, uh, of that. You get two of those. And then you, um, well, you just get one. And, and you, you t- take a fork or, or a paper clip on either side of the leads of that, uh, of, of that wire and you stick one lead into the left side of the hot dog, one lead in the right side of the hot dog, and then you cut the hot dog down the middle and you put the Velveeta cheese in there, and then you plug the plug into the wall. I think it's for about 30 seconds, or I can't remember exactly. And, um, and it cooks the hot dog that way. So you, and that was really the principle that, that, was, that founded um, Ron Popeil's hot dogger, which he made millions on. <laughs> but that was the way I, that was the way I survived. You know, I, I, they, you know, most, I was an Eagle Scout, so I should have survived on plants and roots, and, but no, it was hot dogs. Yeah, it's hard to uh, blame you with the hot dog thing, especially if you're going pretty hungry at that time, living out of a tent. It's one of the few joys in life, I'm imagining. And as you were toiling away in construction, you still knew that media was in your future, so you called in a favor and created the demo take that landed you a gig at a Raleigh radio station. And over the next year, you you went from Raleigh Radio to Raleigh TV with WTVD to Orlando reading the news to anchoring the nightly news in Nashville with Pat Sajak as your weather guy. Before too long, you were even hired away, as you talked about a few answers ago, by WCBS in New York City. And it was around that time that participatory journalism became popular. What exactly is participatory journalism? And do you have a favorite personal example of taking part in this style? Yeah, it was. Uh, so back in the day, uh, and, and this is, it was an interesting time. So what I was trying to do with this, with, with this book was not only tell you my life story, but I, 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 when I read uh, Bruce Springsteen's memoir, I also got a look at the 1960s and the 1970s. It's, it's, a, it's a different look in, in, in my book, but you get a chance to see the history of radio and, and, and television news and also the history of of um, you know PBS music and things like that. Uh, but as far as the as far as the news thing goes, Right about the time I was in the mix, so I was an anchorman in, in Raleigh and then, or yeah, Orlando nationally, right? Um, it, it was, it, newscasts were changing from 15 minutes of news to uh, a half hour and then an hour of news. And then it became not just sort of boring talking head guys, but they, happy talk was born. And, and there was a guy named Al Primo. He created uh, Eyewitness News. So when eyewitness news happened, and then there was action news, and so there were stations all over the country, and even in in, uh, in Canada that were, and there still are, they became eyewitnesses. And the idea was, we're going to send a reporter out there, and they're going to be an eyewitness for you, right? And so they encouraged us, especially in New York, they encouraged us to get involved in the story. <laughs> and Geraldo was the uh, was was the the greatest example. He was the kingpin of this where he uncovered the atrocities in a uh, uh in, in a um a place called willowbrook which was known basically as a, uh, you know as a mental institution is what they called it back in the day and it was just it was it was a terrible story it changed the way nursing homes are today in uh, in america and and he went in there and he went in rolling right he didn't have any permission and that led to uh, people doing things like i did which was there was a there still is a, a, a horrific homeless problem in new york city and this was back in 1976 and and the news team and i came up with the idea that I would live on the streets of New York in the dead of winter as a homeless man. 
Wow. And so that story, that story is in the book. Yeah. Except that I'm six, six, I'm a lacrosse player. I'm six, six and two twenty five. <laughs> and so what I, and I, they put a beard on me and they made me look like a look, look a mess, but I still, even my, even my uh, cameraman who was in a, a, a van with a one way uh, mirror on it. I mean, yeah, he said, uh, Tess, you look like a linebacker for the Jets. <laughs> and so the only thing that got me into the, into the whole uh, moment was I went and got some MD 2020, which is this ter- Mogan David terrible, you know, rot gut wine. And it's I, the first I, stuff I, I ever first... puked up as a teenager, John. It uh, brought back those memories for me. Right, because it's designed to do that. It's designed yep. to disrupt your stomach to the point where you just you just vomit. <laughs> and so, uh, knowing that, I just sort of switched some around in my mouth, and then I uh, and, that, and that didn't work. People still were like, "Yeah, you're you're get out of here. You're not really homeless." And so I poured some on myself and. <laughs> And then I took my shoes off, and it was, you know, it was like 10 below zero. And, um, and I, became, I, I became part of that community. And the, the, the stories, and they're in the book, the stories about the, the compassion that actually police officers had, for, you know, for me. Um, and, and, and knowing also what these, these people that I had befriended during that, that week, that they probably weren't going to make it through the, through the week. Uh, it, was a, it, was, it was an eyewitness of what it was like to be homeless in New York and and, you know, I mean, we won an Emmy for it, big deal, but it was, it definitely, uh, it brought the plight of the homeless to the attention of, of, of New York Mayor Abe Beam. And, and I think we made a little bit of a difference, but that's what participatory journalism was. That's a long way of answering your question. I'm sorry, but it, it was getting involved. Nowadays, you do something like that. People go, get out of my face. You know, you just, you're, you're, you're grandstanding. And, it, and there was some of that, of course. And uh, you also talk about, and I'm not going to ask you to tell this story. People need to go buy the book to check this one out. The, the fine line that existed with participatory journalism and how uh, you crossed it at one point and just uh, some of the uh, the emotions that you went through in that situation. Now, in 1981, you got the call from CBS Sports. They were looking to do something in the vein of ABC's wide world of sports. They wanted you to help with sideline reporting and event coverage, in part because you were so good at live interviews. What's the key to conducting a good live interview? Well, first, uh, you, you should know that, um, that when they called me and they said, hey, we'd like you to come work for CBS Sports, I said to Terry O'Neill, the, 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 the new executive producer of CBS Sports, I can't name three NBA teams. Right. <laughs> you don't want me. And he said, nah, where we're sending you, it doesn't matter. It's going you know, to be gymnastics and, <laughs> and uh, you know, downhill skiing and things <laughs> like that. Um, you know, I, you know I, I think one of the most valuable chapters in this book, certainly for people who are just starting out and for entrepreneurs, is a chapter called Be Found Ready. And that I was taught that by a guy named Bill Leslie, who was who trained me at WKIX Radio when I was almost 20 years old. And it, it's it's basically learning how to how to ad lib on your feet. And so what he would do, what Bill would do, and we we became roommates back there in, in the middle 70s. And what what he would do is every morning before he went off to work, he would read uh, the newspaper. Then he would he would take one. A story in particular, and he'd read it, and then he'd put it down, and then he'd, he'd pretend he was holding a microphone and look into the mirror, and he would ad-lib two minutes and 30 seconds of that story, which is sort of the quintessential, quote-unquote, stand-up of a, of, a, of a news correspondent. And so watching him do that, and then watching him on the air and seeing how good he was, I did that every day, I mean, for, you know, for a decade. And so when they sent me out to do stories at, at CBS, I was pretty good, you know, even though I was young, I was pretty good on my feet. I, I, I was able to, to describe things, and, and, I, um, and I also knew that one of the real keys for an interview was, not to, was to prepare emotionally 
but not to bring questions on a piece of paper and, and to make sure that you, you know, make sure that you listen. I've also, I listen, I also had an advantage. I, I was, I was big. I was, like I said, I was six six two twenty five, And so people's eyes go to you first. And so a lot of times I got the first interview, even if it was, mm. at, you know, if it was at sideline with Jimmy Connors, which also is a crazy story that I'm sure you read mm-hmm. um, about how he almost you know, destroyed my career and John McEnroe and those guys. And so when you're, when you're in a news conference like that, the eye goes to you. And so that was an un- un- unfair ad- advantage, but O'Neill saw something there and he said, um, you know, he thought it might be a, uh, uh, you know, a good, a good fit for, for, uh, for sports reporting. But um, he didn't know that I was really that I was a musician and and his decision to hire me really changed my life because I, I I started my music career in earnest by writing music for an event that I was covering as an announcer, which was the Tour de France. That's right. And uh, you tell some great stories regarding the Tour de France in there. Since you just referenced it, uh, would you mind telling of the infamous incident regarding tennis great Jimmy Connors after he had histrionically won the U.S. Open in 1982? What happened between you and him? Yeah, it's um, it's one. <laughs> it's it, you know those things where you want to take it back. I really wanted to take it back. Uh, what happened was, uh, I mean, a short version of the story is that I was hired to uh, to do all the sideline interviews for the U.S. Open back in 1982, 1983. And, and what what that basically is, you stand on the sideline with a <clears throat> excuse me with an earpiece in, and when the when the tennis player and this these were this was really the heyday of uh, of, of just great tennis. You know, Eli Nastasi, Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe. Uh, you know, Jimmy Connors and Von Lendl, you know, and that, and that sort of, you know, the, the, uh, the, the evil Czech uh, tennis player versus the American, you know, Connors. And so it was, your job is you have an earpiece and you're live and the, and the truck can talk to you and let you know, you know, when to go. Right. And then you have another earpiece in your right ear, which is counting you down to commercial and all this. It's just craziness. And uh, there was this amazing match between the two of them, between Lendl and, and Connors. And I mean, they were giving each other the finger. Connors was putting his, his racket between his legs and, 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 you know, and making disgusting gestures and, and shaking his hand and the crowd, you know, this is a New York flushing meadow crowd. You know, they were going nuts. It was, it was like bloodlust. It was like, uh, <laughs> it was like Mad Max, you know, two, go in only one comes out it really well i mean because the children even saying that it was incredible uh, it was, uh, sports television and and connor's prevailed and here i was on the sideline right and and i had interviewed connor's maybe five or six times during all the preliminary events so we knew each other so he walks up to me and uh and what i didn't know was going to happen happened and that is they took my microphone not only into the truck and to millions of people you know on the cbs sports network but also up into the stands on the public address system oh man you know with 10,000 people and with it, and you've seen people mess this up on the on the uh the the uh the anthem right the uh, the um uh, the, the the U.S. anthem, and it's um it it, it it's there's a delay, and it's really it's it's really it's really it's really it's really hard hard to talk talk when that's happening mm. happening you know, and so and I actually do this in the audio book so people can get a feeling for it, <laughs> but um the first thing I said to him was was what I was feeling, and this was like this is why I was hired as an interviewer, you know I wasn't gonna pander to him, I just said wow, wow Jimmy Connors uh, America's champion in America's tournament. Jimmy, was there, was there something more than tennis going on out there today? We all saw it. And he stopped for a moment. He was actually going to take a drink out of his, uh, out of his water bottle. But the, the audience in the stands read it as 
he didn't like the question because he didn't answer right away. He looked down and so the crowd just go all of a sudden the crowd goes Ooh, like that. And so Connors here, hears that. And he is like, he, I, I mentioned that he's like Galactus. He's all, you know, he's like a, like a, an old comic book character. He's absorbing all the power in there. And, uh, and then I've got in my ear, I've got the guys in the truck, Frank Turkinian, who I still stay in touch with yelling upbeat questions, upbeat questions, Tesh, what the hell are you doing? So now I'm in a panic, right? And uh, the whole world is watching. It's the biggest event I've ever done. And so Connors looks back up at me and smiling, you know, and I, and I, and I say, I'm going to forget that in, in my mind. I'm going to forget that question. I go, so Jimmy, anyway, in the first set, he goes, John, 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 holds up his finger and goes, let me answer your question. And the crowd goes nuts and booing and cheering and everything, you know, and, and then Connors opens his hands. Like if you've ever seen gladiator, when, when Marcus, uh, I mean, when Maximus Aurelius Decimus, Maximus Decimus, whatever his name is, Maximus holds his arms out and goes, are you not entertained? And the crowd goes nuts after he slaughters everybody in front of him. That was, that was Connors. He had slaughtered me, holds his hands out in supplication and just doesn't even say anything. And the crowd goes crazy. And he walks away from me and, 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 uh, it's over. The interview's over. All the cameras leave me and they follow him. And the next day, the newspapers crucified me. I mean, they did. And uh, just what's, what's, you know, what's with this guy, this new guy at CBS? He's trying to make a name for himself by asking bad questions. I had been thrown out of a news conference with John McEnroe uh, because I asked him a, a tough question. And just, you know, doing the news thing. And so one, one paper, though, said, uh, came out and said, Tesh gets right to match point. That was their headline of Sports Monday. And it saved my job. I got called into the uh, to the executive producer's office. He said, "Well, the newspaper saved your job because if they hadn't written that, I would be done." I love the happy ending to that story. Yeah. Fast forwarding a little bit now, John. Uh, people need to read Relentless because uh, you tell some great stories about how you got in at Entertainment Tonight. It started with you not really treating the first interview and screen test so seriously, and then eventually you follow up after some things changed at CBS. Uh, moving ahead to your fourth year at Entertainment Tonight in 1989, your buddy David Michaels calls you again to see if you would want to do some side work with him at NBC Sports, including covering the Tour de France and 92 Summer Olympics. During that year's tour coverage, you heard that NBC, which had recently landed broadcast rights for the NBA, was openly looking for a signature theme song to accompany their coverage. How did you end up creating the NBA on NBC theme song titled Round Ball Rock, one of the most beloved music tracks in the history of sports? <laughs> Thanks. Um, I tell this story in, in concert because it's fun to be at a piano il- il- illustrating it, but I was not really known as a, as a professional composer. I mean, I was doing music for a bike race, but that wasn't really lighting anybody up other than me and some bike racers. <laughs> and so when I, when I heard that they were looking for that theme, you know, you sort of get that when, when you're working for sports, you sort of get the inside track on what's happening and what they're, what they're looking for. And NBC, uh, you know, to their credit, was just like, hey, just send us, a, send us everybody, just send us a demo. We're not going to go with the usual guys like Hans Zimmer and John, John Williams and any of those guys. And so they would take submissions. I thought, boy, if I could just get a theme like this, it would be amazing. And I got an idea in the middle of the night for, for what a basketball theme might sound right, sound like, but I was in Majev, France, like you said, uh, covering the tour. And I knew that if I, that melody that was in my head when I, when I woke up at two in the morning, if I didn't write it down somehow or record it, that it would be gone. I mean, everybody's had that feeling where you have, a, you have this bright idea in the middle of the night when you have to get up and you have to pee and then you're, it's gone the next morning. 
And so I, I did what most people would do is, uh, you know, remember it's 1990 or so, is I called my answering machine back in, in the States and I left a message for myself, and the message was basically what I had in my head, which was, machine cut me off, and I called back. You know, it's like 90 numbers to call the states from Mejev. And he picked up again. I said, here's the rest of the theme. You know, and so I was able to go to sleep. I forgot the theme when I woke up the next morning, and two weeks later, I, uh, I, w- I arrived back in the States and I, I checked my messages. I only had two, which shows how popular I was. And I, <laughs> I, I put the, the answering machine on top of the piano and I played the first one. And uh, I, I figured it out on the piano. I said, wow, this might be something. And then I played the second message, which, which ends up being the, you know, the second part of the song. And I said, wow. And it was all in like, it was pretty easy to play because I had sung it actually in A minor and, and in B flat. And then I got the band together and I put that, I put it together, put a demo together. And I said, well, you know, we should really put strings on this to make it sound amazing. So I hired a small orchestra, like 12 strings. And I put that on there. And then, uh, I was in, I was actually, I figured, listen, what I should do is I should, uh, uh, I should make sure that these guys have a way of, of seeing what it would look like. So I found an old tape of, of, uh, a VHS tape of an NBA game. I took it to a small editing house. And I married the, the song, the demo that I had to the, to the footage, and we edited that. And the editor, at some point, said, you know, I said, there's something wrong. There's just something wrong. And he goes, it's not fast enough. They're, they're dribbling the ball faster than your theme. And so light bulb went off in my head, and I, I, I got, a, temp, I got a, a digital metronome out. And no, it was a real metronome at that time. And I figured out that the, uh, that the dribble rate of a fast break for Michael Jordan and, and, um, and Magic Johnson was about 131, 132 beats per minute. That was the tempo, which is a little faster than a Donna Summer song and about the tempo of, of what a disco song is, is today. And so I sped it, I would put it back into my computer, it was a single of your uh, keyboard, and, uh, and I, I sped it up to 131 and then went back in and edited it again and sent it off to Dick Ebersol. And within two days, he called back and said, this is great. You know, basically, you know, let us play it for 20 years and put two of your kids through college. <laughs> but it was that it was that ridiculously simple. But I, I thought that the melody was was catchy. Um, and and the the real key to it was understanding what it was like to be um, a, 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 a sports producer, because I I'd lived with them in trucks for so long, understanding that that I shouldn't just do a piano demo, that I should do a finished song. And not only that. I should put it on tape so that they, and, and I even built in a middle section where the announcer could talk over, over, uh, to, over the music and, and do the commercial reads, you know, who the, the sponsors and all of that stuff. So I really left no, no barrier for, uh, for failure. A pretty incredible detail to read about as well of you actually having the foresight to check and see what the dribble rate was and try and match the tempo of that with the actual song. Well, and I had just come out, you know, a lot of this came from David Michaels. Now, David Michaels is Al Michaels, the great announcer's brother, and their, and their dad, uh, Jay Michaels, was the head of IMG for a while um, with Mark McCormick. And so Michaels, when, when Terry O'Neill paired Michaels and I up, and I had never met him before, Michaels was the one that said, hey, John, come on, we're doing the Tour de France. I said, I've never even seen a bike race. And he goes, yeah, but, and he knew I was a musician. He said, bring your synthesizers with you. Uh, and we're, we're going to do this like a movie. And we did for six years. We did it. And people just lost their minds. They loved it. Michaels did an incredible job. But 
I'm not the kind of guy, and because I'm a musician and because I'm an announcer and a, and a writer, I, I don't I don't like like showing up and announcing something without without being involved. So I spent every you know, Michael would tell you I spent every minute of of the edit process with David sitting on his shoulder or either that or sitting in the booth with my with my synthesizers, working with him. It was almost like Hans Zimmer working with uh, I mean this is a real stretch, but Hans Zimmer working with um, with Ridley Scott right on, on Gladiator, where I knew every shot, I knew every temp, and so what we would do and this is where I got that, what we would do is a lot of the music was matched to the, to the pedaling tempo of the, of the, of the riders. And, and, and it's, it's subtle enough where, you know, maybe it's just a timpani that's doing something like that, or even just a bass guitar, but you get the feeling that you're in, you're, you're in the peloton with, with the riders when you do something like that. And so when it came time to create the, the basketball theme, I already had those, those, those tools in my toolbox. Now, music remained a passion for you throughout your TV career, including a few failed attempts to gain credibility and notoriety as a musician. But you finally did break through into that side of entertainment in 1994 with the now famous concert John Tesh live at Red Rocks with the Colorado Symphony. How did that idea come about and was PBS receptive when you first pitched it to them? You just asked a question you know the answer to. You're really good at that. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Trying to set you up, John. yeah, thank you so much. That's, uh, that's I'm, I'm at the T-ball now. Um, <laughs> that's uh, the, I tried when I was in the entertainment tonight. I just figured, I, you know, I, 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 you could have whiteboarded this. I said, listen uh, to myself. I said, I, here I am. Twenty three million people a night are seeing me doing this show. And I have all these songs and I, I should just you know, send these songs to Arista and Columbia Records and CBS Records and A&M Records. And somebody will give me maybe five of them will give me a, a record deal. And I got turned down from the mall just saying not what we're really into right now. And I mean, I, I, I got it at the time. It's, you know, here's the guy reading the celebrity birthdays. Uh, you can't possibly be on the same label as Billy Joel or Elton John. And so I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? And I was married at the time to Connie, Connie Selleck and my wife. And uh I, we sat down one night, we were watching PBS, just sort of, you know, scanning through the stations. And it was U2 Under a Blood Red Sky was one of the programs at Red Rocks. And then the Moody Blues at Red Rocks. And I turned to Connie and I said, you know what, this is, and then we saw a Yanni special at the, at, uh, in Greece at the Acropolis. I said, this is what I need to do. I need to do something this big and raise my hand and, and say, uh, 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 you know, this, this is my passion and, and, but I need to do it big. And, and Ken Cragen had just, uh, who did, uh, we are the world who put that together, had just written a book called life as a contact sport. And it was all about, you have to do something, you have to do something, you have to do it big if you're going to get noticed. And so we went to PBS with the idea and they basically laughed it off and said, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have any, you don't have any history as a, as an artist, you don't have any history, any touring history, but if you make something, we'll take a look at it. So, you know, long story short, Connie and I uh, put up, a, took a second on our house, and, and God bless her for, you know, for standing by me and believing in my music. But in, uh, so we had the 80-piece Colorado Symphony Orchestra, all my music, we even, even in, and David Michaels, I mean, my guy, he directed it. We even had Olympic cameramen, guys who had covered figure skating and gymnastics, you know, doing all the boom work and everything. And, and so uh, it started off. Oh, Nadia Comaneci and Bart Connor, uh, the gymnasts, were going to perform in the, in the middle of the uh, of the arena, the amphitheater. And if you're, you've seen this place, I mean, it holds eight thousand people. It's, it's, it's they call it God's amphitheater. It's crazy. 
And about four songs in, it just started raining like sideways. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. the orchestra had to leave because otherwise their, their instruments would be ruined. And we were left with just the core band, just five of us. And uh, we thought, well, we're done now. There goes my house. There goes our, my music career. There goes my chance. And uh, the audience wouldn't let us go. They just stomped there. They put on their slickers. They put up their umbrellas and they stomped their feet like boom, 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 boom. And uh, we kept playing. Uh, and we said, well, we'll just have fun. What the heck? We're not leaving anyway. And we ended up in a driving rain. And when you see the video of this, you, you know, it's, the rain is going sideways. It's pouring out of my piano. And it's always a guy playing electric violin, Charlie Bisharat. It's He's getting ready to be electrocuted, you know, and stuff kind of, you know, rain just flying off the, off the kick drum and the snare drum of Dave Hooper's drums. And um, after about four songs, you know, with just a core band, the rain supernaturally stopped and the moon came out and this mist appeared and came over the stage about two feet over the stage and you would pay like five grand to have yeah. a mist like that yeah it was just nat- just naturally created and the orchestra came back and we finished the show and there was a little lady named linda taggart at maryland public television who tested the show in the middle of the night one night on a sunday night called me up at et on monday and said i think you've got something here your show just beat the three tenors and yanni as far as pledges it was a pledge show and raising money and um, and that little comment, you might have something here, ended up raising about eight million dollars for for public television, and we went from selling fifty records a month to fifty thousand, and uh, and ended up with a with a sixty city concert tour. So, in 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 the blink of an eye, it uh, I I went from being on television to being a full time musician. Well, that just speaks to your belief and uh, what it was that you were destined to do, whether it is the radio, television, medium, or music. And uh, speaking of radio. Why is the legendary Quincy Jones partially to thank for your return to radio in 1997? Yeah, I was trying to think. We had a kid at home, uh, Prima, who's now 25. She was just a couple of years old. And I was on, I'd been on the road, you know, for three tours in a row. So it was, I was getting the, uh, the, the Italian evil eye from my, my wife with, uh, with good reason. And we were, I was trying to figure out, you know, I have to do something. I got to take myself off the road, maybe do 20 concerts a year instead of 60. And, uh, and it was tough because I really enjoyed doing it, but I also knew that my, I was going to destroy my family. I wasn't even going to meet my daughter really. And, uh, so I thought I, I got to get back into, I didn't want to get back into television. I'd had enough. I thought maybe radio. And, uh, we were at, uh, a restaurant called Orso which was in the theater district of, of New York city. And, and I'm walking in and I see Quincy Jones. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's Quincy Jones. And, <laughs> and, um, and I said, you know, I sort of nodded and said, hi, whatever. And, and he said, he goes, Hey man. And I was <laughs> like, Quincy Jones just said, Hey man. And he goes, Hey man. And I said, hello, Mr. Jones. And, and he goes, you're the, you're the hyphenate. And I said, what? He goes, you're the hyphenate, right, man? <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones. I'm John Tesh. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. He goes, you're the hyphenate. You do music and you do TV and stuff. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, he goes, that's good, man. You're the hyphenate. Yeah, yeah, you're the hyphenate. And, um, and that was when, uh, when Revelation was born for me. So I'm like, why do I only have to do one thing, right? Why, why I, I can do, because in America, they want you to stay in your lane and just do one thing, or they did back in the day. And that was when I said, I can, I can, I can have that. I can create something for my family where I'm a part of my family. And, and, and that's really, really where the, the, that was the nexus of the idea behind the Intelligence Fair Life radio show. And Intelligence for Your Life has been going on for more than 20 years now. What was the goal for that program when it was conceived, and is that the same goal to this day? Yeah, it's the same goal to this day. It's a little more, I mean, it's perfect for, you know, I mean, we're, we're having this conversation in the middle of the, of the coronavirus, and, and I'm on lockdown in, in, in Los Angeles. Um, and it's, you know, it, it is, 
Well, our, the battle cry is if it doesn't move you forward in your life, if it doesn't cause you to make a big difference in somebody else's life, we won't put it on the air. And so it's, it's, it's basically a lot of encouragement. No celebrity birthday. There's lots of encouragement. But it was really created. My <laughs> wife didn't even know she was doing it. She created it where we were 20 years ago. We were getting ready to retire for the evening. And she took a look at my side of the bed uh, to complain because my side of the bed looks like, like uh, Radio Shack vomited all over. It's like <laughs> wires and connectors and all kinds of stuff that could shock you, you know. And, uh, and she said, what is this? And, and, and I said, oh, she said, this is our sleep chamber. What are you doing with all that crap? So I realized that I needed to cross complain as a good husband. I looked at her side of the bed and it was stacks of magazines and it had all these yellow sticky notes on them. I hadn't noticed it before, but there must've been like 50 magazines. I said, what's all this? And she goes, these are all the magazines. These are all the articles that I'm going to get to, but I just haven't had time. And those sticky notes mark where the articles are. And the light bulb went off in my head and I said, oh my gosh. Why don't we do a show for this woman who wants, and I, even the, the words just came, the intelligence for her, you know, for her life. And it, we originally started calling it the Sticky Note Radio Show. <laughs> and so I actually grabbed those magazines. Let me, let me have those. You know, you know, and I, took, I looked at the articles. They were like 5,000-word articles. And I realized that you know, in radio, because I knew this, in radio you had to do like a minute 30, two minutes or something. And so I rewrote them, you know, curated them basically, and turned them into 240-word uh, pieces, which is not easy, right? I mean, if you, I'm sure you've done that. And, uh, and, I, and, then, and I started, uh, you know, putting together uh, what these would sound like. And I called a friend of mine who was promoting my music. And I said, hey, we're going to do a radio show. It's called Intelligence for Your Life. And you're the, uh, you're the affiliate relations guy. And he goes, what's that? And I said, just call radio, radio stations and tell them that uh, John Tesh is doing Intelligence for Your Life on the radio. And he goes, wait, that sounds like a seminar. And I said, whatever, just call them. <laughs> so we just acted as if I didn't have a demo. Right. And we just said, this is what we're doing. It's great. It's fantastic. It's the uh, it's five ways to shrink your waistline, two ways to be a better parent, three ways to find your purpose in life and surrounded by music. And come on, let's go sign up. And, you know, three or four or five, six stations signed up. And I hired a staff of 10 researchers uh, because I, I pitched the idea to uh, to Westwood One and to, uh, to Clear Channel. It was Clear Channel at the time and not iHeart. And they were like, get out of our face. This is way too expensive. <laughs> and once again, my wife and I, we funded this thing because she believed in it, too. And stations started sharing the responses they were getting. And now it's, I mean, I don't know, what is it, 14 million people listen to this show every week. It's crazy. But, for, but it was made for such a time as this, where we're able to speak into people's lives now and say, okay, listen, this is, I got cured of cancer. <laughs> You're going to get past this. This is, what's, this is what's going on. You need to speak life over yourself. Here's, here are some ideas for what you can do during the day. Don't, you know, you got to look away from all, it's just, you know, advice on how to live your life. And when you're 67 years old and you've been through what, you can, what you've read that I've been through in the book, you actually have authority, you know? We have authority to speak into people's uh, lives and speak into their hearts. And so we take that really seriously with that show. What was your last experience in a crack house like? And for anybody who thinks they misheard me, yes, I am asking about an actual crack house. That's my favorite chapter of the book. It sort of comes out of nowhere. In fact, the guy that was editing, Niels, uh, Niels Parker, uh, who was working with me, said, you know, John, this is really a short story, and I'm not sure how it connects in the book. And I said, but it's, just, it's such a family story, and, yeah, it, it, and I, I think it's hilarious. I, maybe it's just because I know all, the, you know all the characters. But my wife can't read, and I, you know, I read the audio book, too. And my wife, we couldn't get through it without laughing. Not to cut you off, John, but it has a certain gallows humor about it once you know yeah. that the ending uh, is uh, in a positive <laughs> fashion, right? Yeah. It, that is, that is, you yeah. know, it's a bizarre type gallows humor. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it is that. Um, 
it, it's you have to yeah those of you who are listening obviously you have to you have to read it it's it's uh, I, Gladiator had just come out and and Gibb who was I guess he was thirteen fourteen at the time something like that he um, maybe a little older uh, my son he um, uh, he and I decided that everybody had given up on Uncle Vinny because he'd been through three rehabs. And not successfully, and he was still a crack addict. He and his girlfriend, they were living in Florida. And we were in the middle of Thanksgiving, and, and Gib and I just announced that we were going to do an intervention. And the rest of the family, Connie was with us, but the rest of the family was like, oh, come on, that's never going to work. And we got on an airplane, and we flew to Florida, and we lived in a crack house for a couple of days with, with I mean, with guns and swords and just drugs everywhere and just knew we were going to all go to jail. And we ended up, um, I'm not going to tell the rest of the story, but the story of, of, of our relationship with, uh, with Uncle Vinny and, and how many times we had to watch the King of Comedy movie to get him out of the house <laughs> is pretty funny. And it does have a happy ending. And uh, last question, John, you admit early on in this book that when you read books on personal development, you gravitate towards authors who take you inside the lives of artists and performers who, amongst other things, have a unique process of achieving excellence. You're an artist and a performer who has achieved excellence. So what is your unique process? Um, you never see the torpedoes in the water. You know, I mean, you, you got to be smart when you, when you go after something, when you start something, when you create something, when you create a business or when you create an album, you know, any of, any of that stuff. But um, I am, I have, I guess Brene Brown called it the gift of imperfection. I have the gift of imperfection. I have a little bit of ADD. Um, I, I was raised as, a, as a, an incredibly skinny a kid. Uh, I'm 6'6 six, six now. I was 6'6 six, six in junior high, and I weighed 152 pounds. I weighed 225 now. Girls wouldn't talk to me. My only way out was to join a, a garage band and to, and to become a classical you know, musician. I spent a lot of time in my basement because uh, my parents were also exhausted from raising my two older sisters. You know? um, but the, 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 the process for me, I had to find a process because I had average SAT scores. I finished in the middle of my class at Garden City High School. Um, but it, it, was, it was the same feeling as when the doctors had tried everything and the cancer kept coming back and I had to rely on my, on my faith. Um, I, I've, always been, I've always been chased by the fear of being back in that, in that pub tent uh, with no future ahead of me. And the conversations I had with God and the and the the vision that I spoke over myself of my my future, that and and grit and persistence really have always worked to worked out for me in, in, in many different ways. And one of my all time favorite quotes, it's not even in the book, but one of my all time favorite quotes, because I discovered it after I finished the manuscript, is from Thomas Edison, who says most people miss an opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and it looks like work. Hmm. Uh, that, that's the message I like to give to kids, you know, who say, you know, hey, hey, hey can I, how can I get into this business or that business? Is it, it's an enormous amount of work. My wife will tell you, I mean, even in the middle of this thing, you know, I, we're, we're on Facebook like three or four times a day talking to people, you know, writing songs. My daughter is next door right now doing an exercise routine on, on uh, live on, on, on Facebook. You know, we're always recording something or whatever. I, I love being productive. And, uh, and, and that, that, I think they said that process that, that Dr. Wagner taught me, which is, uh, that, you know, focused in intensity and, 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 and pick a lane, you know, my lane has changed over the years, but it was Lin-Manuel Miranda who said on, uh, who created Hamilton, of course, who said on 60 minutes, he said, why you, you know, there's so many people who've, uh, who, who have uh, created uh, musicals, but yours is like the, you know, the most successful of all time. Why you? And he goes, because I picked a lane. 
And wow. and when people tried to pull me out of that lane, I just I just stayed right there. And so I, I think that's that's the big part of it too is don't see the torpedoes in the water and stay in your lane. He is John Tesh, of course, a journalist, composer, broadcaster, and concert pianist. He's also the author of the book we've been talking about today, Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grit, and Faith. John, thank you so much for the time today, man. Really enjoyed the book and the conversation. My pleasure. It's good therapy for me. Talk to you. Bye. (laughs) Take care.